This is going to be a conversation about A Year with Mordecai Kaplan. Rabbi Rubin's brilliant book, A Year with Mordecai Kaplan, Wisdom on the Weekly Torah Portion. You can get it on Amazon or whatever, the Jewish Publication Society website or wherever brilliant books are sold. Here's what I wanted to remind you of before we get to the specifics of some of the book, which is, uh, you know, Kaplan, although he was known as the sort of intellectual founder of Reconstructionism and Ira Eisenstein, Ira Eisenstein, his, his son-in-law became known as the, the movement builder. He was the one who did all the practical work. In fact, um, I might have mentioned that in 1916, uh, Kaplan organized uh, the first uh, synagogue center in America. It was the Jewish center of New York. It was the first shul with a pool that we know of. Uh, swimming pool, gymnasium, literary club, meeting rooms. Uh, and it was really the first attempt of his to sort of create in, in physical form his idea of a synagogue as, a, as an entire community center and not just a place where people went for services to worship. <laughs> and then in 1922, he organized the Society for the Advancement of Judaism, the SAJ, which of course is still in existence and one of the thriving Reconstructionist congregations in the country, in New York. It was officially his first Reconstructionist, in quotes, congregation. It was the first time he saw it that way. Um, where he instituted, of course, Bat Mitzvah in 1922 with his lovely daughter Judith, we know and love. Um, and if, if you're in the chapel for Torah study or anything like that, which is, of course, the room behind this wall, and there's a, one of Judith's talits. Talitot is sort of hanging there, the, the talit that was specially made for her um, on the 70th anniversary of her bat mitzvah when she did a second bat mitzvah. It was a big, um, it was a big event uh, in New York, big since she was the first bat mitzvah in America. And so they made um, a couple of those, and she gave one of them to us, but she gave it to me. That's the same as us. So then it went on the wall. <clears throat> Besides, she she did it March 21st, which is my anniversary. So in honor of my anniversary, I got her talit. Um, <coughs> and then in 19, this is all the background of me reminding you that he never took credit for being a an empire builder or an organizational person, but rather the theorist. But then in 1935, he founded the Reconstructionist magazine. And in 1954, he was the one who really was the force behind starting the Federation of Reconstructionist Congregations in Chavarot, which eventually became JRF, which eventually disappeared, uh, which eventually became, became the uh, Reconstructing Judaism community that's merged with the, the rabbinical school. And, of course, in 1934, I don't have his books in front of me, but he published uh, his famous Judaism as a Civilization, which 
which he articulated really the foundation of Reconstructionist thought in the first place. Um, so I'm going to show you a couple of things that went into the thinking behind that. This is, and if I hadn't forgotten that today was a holiday and the synagogue was closed, I would have had these reproduced. But then I remembered as I was on my way here to have these reproduced that, in fact, it was closed today. So you don't get any of these. <coughs> this is called A Modern Jewish Credo, and it was published in the Jewish Tribune in New York in 1922 in honor of the establishment of the SAJ. When they formed the Society of Advancement of Judaism, they wanted to publicize and get people to come and join the SAJ. So what Kaplan did was he published these 13... Um, well, I'll read it. Below, we publish the platform of the Society for the Advancement of Judaism, whose founder and leader is the eminent American Jewish philosopher, Professor Mordechai M. Kaplan. And by the way, when he was the rabbi of the SAJ, he referred to himself as the leader. And, and his, the title underneath his name was leader. Why? I don't know. I never asked him. But <clears throat> the platform consists of... Actually, I do know. <coughs> the reason it was leader <clears throat> was um, because in Kaplan's philosophy, Kaplan's understanding of Jewish history was that we went through the various stages of Jewish history and that in the 20th century, with the founding of his ideas and Reconstructionism and the SAJ, he understood us to now be in the newest stage of Jewish history, which he called the democratic stage, because, you know, it was the flesh of 20th century America. The democratic stage in which, unlike the biblical priestly stage or the rabbinic stage, we're now in the medieval stage, now we're in the democratic stage where he believed that the proper way of functioning as a Jewish community would be democratically, that we should, everybody in the Jewish community should get a vote, and the vote should be on various things like what kind of institutions they have, what kind of services should be provided, I mean, religious services, traditional, modern, music-oriented, art-oriented, whatever, that, that people would sort of vote, and vote for the social services that the community should provide, and, and they would pay dues to the community, not to an individual synagogue or organization, but the community, and then the community, based on the vote, the democratic voice of its members, would then provide for the community the whatever services, both religious and otherwise, that the community asked for. So he thought we were now in the democratic stage and would cross all denominational lines he never wanted to start a new denomination anyway. So that was his vision. So, leader rather than was sort of like a, one of the people kind of title. The platform consists of 13 planks or principles. And though it modestly substitutes the words we want for we believe, nice. It is no exaggeration to describe it as a modern Jewish credo so searching and comprehensive in its conception of Judaism and Jewish life. Our readers, this is from the Jewish Tribune, our readers are invited to send us their opinions of the platform, which reads as follows. So this was the founding platform that Kaplan wrote of his synagogue, his first official reconstruction synagogue, the SAJ, Society for the Advancement of Judaism, 1922. 
We want Judaism to help us overcome temptation, doubt, and discouragement. Number two, we want Judaism to imbue us with a sense of the responsibility for the righteous use of the blessings wherewith God endows us. Number three, you'll get a certain sense of these. We want the Jew to be so trusted, 1922, we want the Jew to be so trusted that his yea will be taken as yea and his nay as nay. Like, imagine this is the like founding document of a synagogue. Number four, we want to learn how to utilize our leisure to best advantage physically, intellectually, and spiritually. Number five, there's 13 of these. We want the Jewish home to live up to its traditional standards of virtue and piety. The Jewish home as in your own home, not the Jewish home where people go. Number six, we want that our children shall be taught to appreciate the significance of Israel's career, Israel's career, so that they will accept with joy their heritage as Jews. Number seven, we want the synagogue to enable us to worship God in sincerity and in truth, which is his way of both mentioning God and talking about worshiping God in truth, meaning with rationality from Kaplan's perspective, as you may notice in my book whenever I quote him. Number eight, we want our religious traditions to be interpreted in terms of understandable experience and to be made relevant to our present-day needs. Number nine, we want to participate in the upbuilding of Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, as a means to the renaissance of the Jewish spirit, 1922. It's going to take a while. Number ten, we want Judaism to find rich, manifold, and ever-new expression in philosophy, in letters, and in the arts. Number 11, we want all forms of Jewish organization to make for spiritual purpose and ethical endeavor. Number 12, we want that the unity of Israel throughout the world be fostered through mutual help in time of need and through cooperation in the furtherance of Judaism at all times. And number 13, we want Judaism to function as a potent influence for justice, freedom, and peace in the life of men and nations. So that was the founding document of his synagogue. How did that sound to you? What any of these ideas uh, stir anything? Push your buttons? What? Yeah. Yes. In theory, in practice, he was Kaplan, so everybody did whatever he wanted. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, he hadn't. Uh, this was this was the founding document of what he thought would become a role model. He hoped would become a role model of the way synagogue should function, um, based on the, his philosophy that a synagogue should be a multifaceted spiritual and physical community center. Yeah. I, I've heard this before, but it was said differently. Is it all the 
Yeah. And that's what it sounded like. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. But yes, that's true. I mean, you know, listen, there's ideals, there's ideals, there's philosophy, um, there's Animal Farm, there's a great book, though. There's, you know, there's theory and there's practice. And it's kind of like when I meet with interfaith couples often and, and they ask me questions about, you know, interfaith experiences like raising kids and doing those, all those things. And one of the things I often am talking to them about is the difference between theoretical religion and practical religion. That is, if you go to the bookshelf and you pull off the book that says what Jews believe about what Catholics believe about, what Episcopalians believe about, what Lutherans believe. You'll have a book, you'll probably several, that will articulate the theoretical theology, philosophy, attitudes of a particular religious tradition. This is what, of course, Jews are always just arguing with each other. But in theory, you could pull a book out and say, you know, this is what Jews teach, this is what Judaism teaches, this is what Jews believe. I said, that's all well and good, but when you're in a relationship with someone, that really doesn't matter. What matters is, what is that person who happens to be Jewish or Catholic actually, what are the choices that he or she's going to make about living your life? What matters to him? What matters to her? What, you know, what holidays do they want to celebrate? And how do they want to celebrate them, if they want to celebrate them? And, you know, all those kinds of, what I, what I would, what I call practical religion, that is, what what an actual person who still claims that label, how they live their life. And if you're in a relationship with someone, that's the only part that matters. It's, you know, what, what matters to them. So, and th- that's an ongoing, evolving situation anyway. So, same here. Same with any country, any theory, any constitution, any philosophy, I suppose, and certainly for an institution. Here, Kaplan articulated these are the principles, got other people to go along with him, obviously. It wasn't just him. He, he had a board. He had a congregational, you know, lay leaders with him. They published this, hoping it would attract people as a kind of uh, articulation of what mattered to them. And it may have been that he, they articulated that the, his role was, you know, the sort of educated leader role, because... But the fact of the matter is, how people really react, is he was the leader. He was this powerful, articulate, brilliant, charismatic guy, big and scary too. So we know what he did, people did, people followed. Um, and, and even when you talk to, when you read some of the stories about the committee, the rabbi committees of his colleagues with him in the beginnings of the Reconstruction Movement, who... Um, who edited the Reconstructionist, First Reconstructionist Prayer Book or the Haggadah, you know, and you see these names on there along with Kaplan, they in their diaries articulated the fact that they would have a discussion and Kaplan had the final vote. <laughs> you know, that was just the way it was. They would discuss if they could convince him, basically they'd go along with it, so they, you know, they were, as you said, they were a group of equals and one was more equal than everybody else because he was Kaplan. You know, that's just the nature of the way it, the way it is. Yeah. How big was it? Actually, I don't, I don't know how big, I don't even know how big it is now. 
um, smaller than us. Everybody's smaller than us. No, so you know, so I don't know. I don't know how, how big it was. Uh, I probably read it at some point in New York. It still is on New York on Central Park West. Right. How, how, so how do you think this would have sounded to non-Reconstructionist Jews? You know, the modern, it says modern Jewish credo, you know. Um, I, I, the most fascinating to me always is we want the Jew to be so trusted that his yea will be taken as yea and his nay as nay. Like, just the, the social context of, in the 1922, Holocaust wasn't... It's only a dream in someone's nightmare and work mind. Um, but, uh, you know, this whole history of Judaism and, and, as, uh, and anti-Semitism and the Jew in medieval history and the Jew as Shylock and the Jew as someone who's going to steal your money and cheat you and do all those things, it, it, it's sort of always rumbling in the background of every... Um, every Jewish organization that interfaces with the public. And so having Jews seen as people of integrity was one of the founding principles of this organization, of this synagogue, so that Kaplan saw the synagogue. um, We want Judaism to help us overcome temptation, doubt, and discouragement. We want Judaism to be the source of our best values and our highest selves which is part of what, the, what he wanted the synagogue to represent, the, our, our best values and our highest selves. Um, and, I mean, who would put in, we want to learn how to utilize our leisure to best advantage physically, intellectually, and spiritually, unless you saw the synagogue as a place more than coming for services. We want the synagogue to be the place people come in their leisure to play mahjong, to have to have book clubs and and intellectually be intellectually stimulated to to have a, a swimming pool and a gym and have you know people physically celebrate life there uh, which we've never been big enough to do but um, here we are we that had our original plan for where we were going what we were going to build this with happened when we were trying to go to Los Leones and made a partnership with the Y, local Y, then we would have, because that was the vision that we had. We were going to go down and get a bunch of acres of that and share a parking lot and have shared space and be a synagogue slash community center with the Y. Yeah, I know. So that didn't work because we're in the Palisades. And Palisades is very good about no. Much better about no than yes. Unless you're, what's his face? Um, we seem to have built a whole center here. Caruso. We should have got Caruso to build the synagogue. He obviously knew how to work it. So, um, you know, we want our children to learn Jewish history and appreciate it. We want the synagogue to act with truth. We want religious traditions to be interpreted in a modern way. With, in terms of understandable experience and made relevant to present day needs. You know, that was the 
the flag he was waving. This is a modern, contemporary, relevant community. Um, and we want Judaism to find rich in every new expression in philosophy, letters, arts. Remember, Judaism as a civilization, Kaplan's you know, mantra, Judaism is the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people, which is what the whole Judaism Civilization book was about, demanded that Jews see their Judaism not as a belief system. Judaism wasn't about the system of belief. Judaism wasn't about theology. Judaism wasn't about just their relationship with God. Judaism wasn't about prayer and services. Judaism was every aspect of your life as a Jew. That was Kaplan. Language, literature, art, history, culture, food, music, all of that is was an expression of your Jewish identity and authentically a synagogue should be a place where you could in fact interact with all of those aspects of your Jewish life through the synagogue, through the community. And the synagogue is kind of the spiritual, intellectual, and physical center of that. And ultimately, number 13 is, is all in many ways part of the punchline because he always saw the Jewish community and the synagogue as when it, when it functions at its best as a force for justice, freedom, and peace. That, that what it, does it mean to be Jewish means to be a force for justice and peace and freedom and the, and our, and the values that matter. So it's not, it's not an accident that one of the first Reconstructionist uh, prayer books really was the Haggadah for Passover. And the first things they did was create this because Passover is, you know, par excellence, that uh, festival of freedom. When we talked about we were slaves and we went free, and if you, <clears throat> I don't know if any of you use the Reconstruction Sagada, um, my family's always used it. We have the original 1946 version or whatever, still, cute books, that we've always used, and uh, it's frighteningly continues to be relevant to this day, um, even though it's talking about coal miners and things like that, and they're making reference to you know, those who struggle underground to keep the lights on above ground, and because he was, uh, he was very conscious of workers and workers' rights, and, and the home labor movement was, you know, was so Jewishly infused that that's reflected throughout the Haggadah, the struggles of the labor movement as a symbol of modern-day freedom struggles for modern-day freedom here in America, because it's an American Haggadah, definitely. Um, but it's all about this. It's all about the, the desire for synagogues to be beacons of justice and freedom and peace for the world. So, that when I choose things, Kaplan quotes, often I'm choosing them with those things in mind. Okay, one other thing, before I might say something about the book. Or am I not? <laughs> but, no, it's supposed to. Here, here's number two. A little later. Not much later. I don't remember the date of this, but somewhere in the 20s still. When, when he was still articulating what became his book, Judaism and Civilization, he published something called The Principles of Reconstructionism, which had ten Ten Principles by Mordecai Kaplan <clears throat> that you see reflected actually throughout the book. So here are the ten. 
I would have reproduced them, but I don't pay attention to my calendar. <clears throat> it says we're closed. Number one. Funny enough, Judaism is an evolving religious civilization. That's the number one principle of Reconstructionism, in which he said, Judaism, or that which has united the successive generations of Jews into one people, is not only a religion, it is an evolving religious civilization. In the course of its evolution, Judaism has passed through three distinct stages, each reflecting the conditions under which it functions. He doesn't say what they are. But then number two is what the present stage calls for. During those stages, the Jews constituted a people apart. Conscious of Jewish history. Now, the Jewish people, like every other, must learn to live both in its own historic civilization and in the civilization of its environment. That will usher the democratic stage of Judaism, during which the reconstitution of the Jewish people, the revitalization of its religion, and the replenishment of its culture will be achieved. He had very low standards for what he ex- expectations, obviously. But <clears throat> this is a reflection of the other, one of the other major fundamental ideas of Reconstructionism and of Kaplan, which uh, is another one of those obvious things. That when, once it's articulated, people go, duh which is that we live in more than one civilization at the same time. We live in multiple civilizations. In Kaplan's articulation, we, li- we are for Jewish, we live in the Jewish civilization. We're American, we live in the American civilization. We're Canadian, we live in the Canadian civilization and the Jewish civilization. And we live in them like this, both. We don't live in them like this, either way. We live in them equally if we're Jewish Americans and the Jewish and the American civilization and our ancestors are equally Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. That's Kaplan's vision, right? That they are, they are equally our ancestors, that we claim them all as our ancestors. You know, we're Americans and these are and Abraham Lincoln and the Ku Klux Klan. And, no, no. We choose the ones that we like and say those are our ancestors and when we're Jewish, those are our ancestors. All those folks in the Torah and, and later. And they are equally, we are equally wrestling with both of those and learning to balance those and live in both those civilizations at the same time, sometimes more than one. I did a baby naming yesterday in Beverly Hills, of course, Persian family. No, not of course, but so happened to be a Persian family living in Beverly Hills. I did, did a baby naming and there's no question they live in at least three civilizations at the same time. Right? Because they're still an immigrant community. They got Persian everything going on there. Music, food, whatever. America, Jewish, their version of Jewish. It's like their civilizations ever. They got, they got, you know, Tehran in the background, basically, as a part of their lives and their culture and what the food is and what they're passing down. And they had uh, Talit there that they wanted me to wrap the baby in that the great grandmother from Iran had and used on the when wrap the baby and whatever for each, every bris. This wasn't a bris, but it was still a boy. It was a non-surgical meal breed ceremony. Um, in any event, and you see, you know, particularly with immigrant communities, of course, the multiplicity of civilizations that we're wrestling with and juggling and trying to make work and, and trying to figure out, you know, which has ascendancy and which doesn't. 
And then last night, Didi and I were down at the Microsoft, is that what it's called, theater? Yeah, Microsoft Theater downtown uh, at a concert where we may have been the only two non-Spanish speakers in the whole room of 7,000 people, but it was uh, a singer named Juan Luis Guerra that we happen to like, even though we don't speak Spanish, and it's, everything was in Spanish. But, you know, it's like, you're, it's like we stepped into a different world. You know, it was a, yes, it's America, and it was definitely America, a lot of that, and talking about New York and things and whatever, and it was, and he stood there and went through, people were, what country there people were from? Colombia, people are cheering. Guatemala, they're cheering. El Salvador, you know, Mexico, whatever, and people are whatever, and they're all there. And here they are, and all in L.A. They're those cultures, this culture, that culture, and then they have their religious reflection, most of them Catholic, but not all of them Catholic, you know, depending on their country. This is part of the, the intelligence with which Kaplan said, so therefore... The Judaism of America is not the same as the Judaism anywhere else because we are wrestling with both our Jewish and our American identities at the same time. And so what comes out is something uniquely American, in this case, his democratic vision. Number three of the principles of Reconstructionism, unity and diversity. Jewish unity should transcend the diversity among Jews. From his mouth. Which is the result of geographical dispersion and of difference in cultural background and in world outlook. Part of what should happen is we should see that there's more that unites us than divides us. Number four, the renewal of the ancient covenant. These are principles of Reconstructionism. Jews the world over should renew their historic covenant, binding themselves into one transnational people with the Jewish community in Israel at its core, henceforth to be known as Zion. Because he was a big Zionist. He moved there for a while lived there when I knew him. He, personally, he was living in Jerusalem. So, um, because you saw the rebuilding of Israel as the spiritual and then physical and cultural center of all of Jewish life in the world, recognizing that Jews would still be all over the world, transnational, not only there. And everywhere we were, we would create our own unique version of Judaism. Um, but... Eretz Israel, the spiritual homeland of world Jewry, Eretz Israel should be recognized as the home of the historic Jewish civilization. Outside Israel, the foundation of organic, what he called organic communities. Outside Israel, Jewish peoplehood should lead to the establishment of organic communities, meaning all activities and institutions conducted by Jews for Jews should be interactive and should give primacy to the fostering of Jewish peoplehood, religion, and culture. He had this notion of what he called the organic Jewish community, that would sort of, if everyone participates, would naturally evolve however it went. But it would be the right, there isn't, you know, one right way, it would be whatever we did. Whatever we chose to do would be the right thing to do because we would be choosing it. Seven out of ten is prerequisites to the revitalization of religion. The revitalization of religion can best be achieved through the study of it in the spirit of free inquiry and through the separation of church and state. Yeah. Number eight, how the belief in God is to be interpreted. The revitalization of the Jewish religion requires that the belief in God be interpreted in terms of universally human as well as specifically Jewish experience. So when you see articulations about God in here, which we will in a second, part of his mind was how can this be articulated in a universal sense? 
as opposed to a narrow Jewish sense? How do we understand God as, in God language, as universal, as something that's common to all people? Number nine, what gives continuity to a religion? The continuity of a religion through different stages and its identity and diver- amid diversity of belief and practice are sustained by what Kaplan called sancta. What's this? This is called a Yorkshire candle. That's what it is. It's a little Yorkshire candle, right? They sell them in the supermarkets. Yorkshire candle that in Jewish tradition, <clears throat> on the anniversary of the death of a loved one, their Yorkshire, you light this candle. And it burns for 24 hours. Actually, it burns a little more than 24 hours, but it burns for 24 hours. And th- we would call that a Jewish ritual. He would refer to that as sancta, S-A-N-C-T-A, saint. For, for Kaplan, the sancta of Judaism is what holds us together. That with all of our arguing and disagreeing and philosophy and theology and what's God and what's this and what's the meaning of history and whatever, Friday night comes, we light candles, we say, we hold up a Kiddush cup, we go, we have a challah, we tear it, we go, and we do that all over the country. In fact, we do it all over the world. And and all of a sudden, all of our arguments, disagreements, our philosophy, our theology, you know, God is this, no God is that, blah, 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 it is irrelevant. Because there we are, standing around the table, lighting Shabbat candles. You know, and you go to different places and different cities and different communities, Orthodox, Reconstructionist, Reform, Conservative, Generic, whatever. And when they're doing those things, they are connecting themselves through the sancta, that is, the sacredness of acts is why he called it sancta, the sacredness of doing. To the sacredness of doing, you connect with community. And when we get, you know, sit around the room and go, okay, tell me, what was, do you have Shabbat memories from your childhood that are specifically Shabbat memories? Did you ever do any Shabbat? Anybody have a Shabbat memory from their childhood in the room? What, like, like what? Yeah, I mean, something for, that's like a memory of, that's a Shabbat thing. Had to wear skirts. Had to have a skirt. Right. Anybody else? Shabbat thing from, from growing up? Any Shabbat experiences? Anybody saw me? Yeah? Well, I grew up in a oh. very small town. And a very cold small town. Still. Somewhere in Minnesota. And uh, Friday night, I would accompany my father to the shul where we would Kabbalat Shabbat, right? 
Yeah, interesting. You know, you start uh, talking to people about memories and they sparks other... I mean, I, I had, like, Linda, our, our Shabbat ritual was, I have three sisters, Friday night, 6 o'clock, at the table. And whatever else was going on, I was in the marching band, I was this, I was that, we came, Friday night, sitting at the table. My, my mother lighting candles and saying Kiddush and... Muncie, and then and then we were done, and then it's whatever. But we did, you know, be there that kind of thing. That's part of the sancta. Although for Kaplan, sancta was more than ritual. <clears throat> sancta sort of encompassed. He used the term to encompass uh, people and places and things that evoked connections as well, uh, Jewishly. Uh, you know, all of that he saw as the that sort of the sacred bonds of doing Jewish. Um, and number 10 was Torah Torah as synonymous with ongoing Jewish culture the traditional concept of Torah should be understood as synonymous with Jewish religious civilization should therefore embrace all the ongoing ethical, cultural and spiritual experiences of the Jewish people he, you know, he he understood Torah to be not just the written word and but he understood Torah with a capital T, sort of the, the larger version of Torah, as all of Jewish uh, wisdom, in a sense, starting with the written scrolls, that is the Torah scroll. Um, you know, one of his more famous quotes, which is probably in this bowl here, is that, um, that rather than God revealing the Torah, the Torah reveals God. I'm sure it's in there because I put it in there. But that's one of Kaplan's famous quotes. More than God, than, than God revealed the Torah because traditionally, you know, the traditional orthodox notion is God revealed the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. And Moses wrote it all down. You know, the whole Torah. It's a little confusing. He either chipped it this way or wrote it that way. But in any event, you know, that, that's the theory was that it's Torah, mean Hashemayim, Torah from the heaven that, that God literally dictated every word of the Torah. Moses wrote it all down. The, uh, there's a wonderful medieval commentary that asks, well, if Moses is writing it all down and, and, and God dictated it, how, what was Moses doing while he was writing about his own death? Because at the end of the Torah, which we just read, Moses dies. And the answer was, he was crying <laughs> while he was writing about his own death. But, you know, the Obviously, he didn't write about his own death. In the meantime, that's the notion. The traditional notion is that God revealed the Torah. And Kaplan, of course, turns it on its head in his Reconstructionist rationale, rational uh, foundation, he says. It's not that, that God revealed the Torah. It's the Torah reveals holiness, reveals sacredness, reveals divinity. That in, through the Torah, through studying the Torah, we reveal God's presence. Um, in the holiness code of Leviticus 19 and love your neighbor as yourself and all the kinds of ideas and ideals that are reflected in the Torah. So, this week, I won't read it from the book. This week, here's one. If you had the, Rabbi Rubin's brilliant book. Um, this week is, this Shabbat, we're reading 
Breshit, we're starting all over again with the Torah. It's day one of Torah reading this week. You know, every year, start all over again. This is the week we start all over again. So, Breshit. Uh, it's a good reflection. So, when I wrote the book, obviously what I did was pick one sentence uh, from each Torah portion as opposed to the whole Torah portion and then use that as the sort of hook to find some of Kaplan's thoughts and share a story. So what I picked was Genesis, if you have the book, you can see, Genesis 2.18, which said, God said it's not good for the human to be alone. I will make a fitting counterpart for him. Could have picked anything, but I like that. Sort of the essence of, to me, creation was it's not good. It's the creation of human beings. Sort of the crown of creation was us. After all, we wrote it. We wrote the story, so we're the most important thing in the story. And it's, um, and it's not just about the creation of generic human being. It's really about relationship. In this case, it's heterosexual, man, male, male, female sort of the paradigm of the world, male-female. Um, and of course, there's a couple versions of creation in the actual text of Genesis, but either way, they still end up with male and female, ultimately. And, um, and so, so I picked that and, and wrote, the Jewish creation story is unlike any other. And remember, this was written thousands of years ago when we study the Enuma Elish and these other Babylonian and other kinds of Near Eastern texts uh, and stories, mythic beginnings, they're never this. They're capricious, they're somebody creating human beings because they needed, you know, servants or whatever. First, God creates Adam, the archetypical human being, and then acknowledges poignantly, quote, it's not good for the human to be alone. I created one, that's, that's not enough. That's not sufficient. One person on an island isn't sufficient. Even the guy on the island had to find a basketball? What was it he did? on Soccer ball? A basketball? And, and call it a person. What, what did he call it? What was the guy's name? Tom Hanks, who created... Uh, what was the guy's name? Can't remember anymore. Anyway, but, right, he needed a person. He had to invent a person to be there and have a relationship with. That's the power of relationships. You know, it doesn't have to be someone you live with. Power of, it's not good for human to be alone. From the moment of creation to this day, human beings have sought comfort and meaning through the act of loving other human beings. It doesn't have to be just one. It can be a community. It can be a family. It can be friends. It can be whatever. But we, living in isolation is not the natural state of human beings. Human beings want to touch other human beings and connect with other. And I think that's the message of this passage in Genesis. Notably as well, at every stage throughout the creation story, whenever God creates something, dividing earth from water, vegetation from plants, lighting up the heavens with the sun and the moon and the stars, fashioning every kind of living creature on water and land, forging a human being from the dust of the earth, we're told God saw it was good, are very good, yet here in this passage for the first time, God admits that something is missing from
from all that God created. God creates, says, this is good. That, good, that, good. Creates a human being, goes, hmm, something wrong here. Not complete here. It's not good for a human being to be alone. We learn in the opening chapter of Genesis that the first thing that's not good in the world is loneliness. In fact, is aloneness is the first thing that's not good in the world. It's always struck me. No matter how talented, competent, wealthy, otherwise fortunate we might be as individuals, when we are alone, something's missing. I mean, you literally can't function alone. You function in a society with other people, one way or another. The Torah suggests that each of us seeks a spiritual partner with whom to share our lives. In this search, we pursue wholeness, hoping to satisfy the fundamental human need to feel complete. Of course, the Midrash says that the first Adam, when the first Adam was created, Adam was created androgynously. Sort of like that picture of the, of the um, comedy tragedy. Both, you know, there's a mask on one side's comedy, on the other side's tragedy. I don't know why I thought of that, but um, that's, that's human life, comedy tragedy, I guess. But the idea was that God, that The first human that God created was both male and female. And then God split that being apart into a male and female. That's one of the Midrash comments. So, Kaplan's insight. The Kaplan, the Kaplan quote I picked was, being important to someone, being needed by someone, that is fulfillment or salvation. Being needed by someone, being important to someone, that's fulfillment. That's salvation. Now, yeah, I did say that. I'll tell you what I said. In this simple but profound statement, Kaplan articulates a fundamental attitude toward religion that's reflected in nearly all of his writings throughout his life. Namely, that for religion to matter, it must be personally meaningful. Thus, in this passage, he equates personal fulfillment with a traditional religious idea of salvation. So that's really why I picked it, because salvation is a term that we use throughout religious life. It's a religious. In the Christian world, it's mostly about personal salvation. I mean, technically, theoretically, belief in Jesus and acceptance is theoretically the path to personal salvation in, in, in the world to come, also in the Olam Haba. In Judaism, so historically, salvation has been connected to the idea of God as Redeemer. God's going to redeem us from our sins or redeem us from our world. We, the whole Jewish people, have this gigantic narrative of God as Redeemer. That's our whole story. Oh, we were slaves. God redeemed us and got us free. That's the redemption of a God. We went from slavery to freedom, individual freedom. So God has redeemed the Jewish people from one enslavement after another, beginning with the exodus from Egyptian slavery to the establishment of the modern state of Israel out of the ashes of the Holocaust. Kaplan, though, defined salvation in very personal terms. Salvation, he defined as being important to and needed by another human being. That's what salvation is. It's like it doesn't need a grand design. It needs someone to care for me, someone that that thinks I'm important enough, that I matter. Everybody wants to matter. That's where you get salvation. Interesting. Interesting. He understood that the fundamental human need for love and connection to others fuels 
every relationship, every act of kindness to strangers, every expression of compassion, and ultimately the very search for the meaning of our lives. His definition is, is a beautiful reflection of the Torah's first teaching about the human condition itself. In his conception, the Torah's assertion that, quote, it's not good for the human to be alone is an explication of what salvation can mean to the individual. By contrast, Judaism has traditionally understood salvation not in terms of the individual alone, but as a reflection of the individual relationship to the larger community. The Jews, Judaism traditionally has well, always, and Kaplan too, people-centered. People as a group-centered. You know, we just got through the high holidays. We're standing there on Rosh Hashanah and we're pounding our, tapping our breasts and saying for the sins which we have created, it's not I. There aren't any prayers in there that go, oh, I did this, I did that. We did this, we did that. We're responsible because it's a we. Because we are a communitarian religious civilization. We're about us. But in the midst of that, every individual seeking meaning in life through relationships and connections. Kaplan's linkage of salvation to the human need for human connection offers insight into his theology as well. For Kaplan, being needed and important to one other human being is not only the path to feeling complete and whole as a human being, it's a way to experience the presence of God in our lives through relationships. As he has also written... God, uh, which is also in this thing in here, in case anybody got it, which I'm going to give you a chance to do in a minute. As he has written, God is in the faith by which we overcome the fear of loneliness, of helplessness, of failure, and of death. Where's God? God is in the faith by which we overcome the fear of loneliness, helplessness, failure, and death. God becomes the, an anchor in the midst of scary, the world that's scary. Because the world is scary. Stuff happens. And then my story about my wife, which you don't have to read. Okay, so, which you can. Because, um, of course, I linked all these to personal stories. You know, what's the point? The point is that Kaplan is a rationalist. Kaplan is a non-supernaturalist needed to then, once he rejected the idea of God as an external being that acts upon us, that simply responds like, uh, I don't know, Santa Claus or whatever, if we're naughty or nice, um, then he needed another way to articulate thousands of years worth of Jewish theology. I mean, we're very God-centered, after all. The whole Torah is what's the most frequently written phrase in the Torah you know, God spoke to Moses saying, that's the most written phrase in the Torah. Constant, almost every paragraph begins, and God spoke to Moses saying, and then God says something to Moses, who then says, does something or says something to us, or passes on, he's like the, the channel through which God speaks, is Moses, right? But it's all God speaking, I mean, the whole Torah, it's God creating us as his people. God having expectations. God having all, all, you know, all this stuff. God having making demands. You should do this, you should do this, you should not do that. Even the Ten Commandments. Things to do, things not to do. But they're all what God wants you to do. So how, what does Kaplan do? He has to 
reinvent that, rearticulate that as a rationalist, as a 20th century rationalist, um, and find God in the everyday of life, starting with relationships, which he does. Okay, so here's the here's the fun of today. Everybody gets one of these. You can reach in there and pick out a some quote. Reach in there and pick out a quote. And some of you will have the privilege of whatever. Somewhere there's a quote. You don't like that one? Take that one. It doesn't like you, obviously. That one didn't want. That one didn't want you, obviously. All right. Pick out a quote somewhere in there. Go ahead. They're all folded over. Each quote is folded over. Pick out a quote. Why not? Big or small or whatever. You want a quote? Pick out a quote. Good, you got a big one. Well, the paper's big. Okay. So, these are all Mordecai Kaplan quotes that are in this book. Well, I have... 112 of them in the book, so I think, I think 112. I can't remember. Um, maybe more. Uh, so, this is now show and tell. Yeah. So, who wants to share one of their quotes? Okay, we'll start over here. Being important to someone, being needed by someone, that is fulfillment or salvation. You picked Brayshit. Exactly. The very first one that I just read from Bray Sheet is being important to someone, being needed by someone. I love that. So, uh, a second quote. Who wants to do another quote? I'm going to, since this is being recorded, I'm going to hold the microphone close. Civilization arose as soon as the human being began to sense conflict between his own claims as an individual and those of society. Ah. Civilization arose as soon as the individual started recognizing that there was potential conflict between his or her own desires and that of the society. Right? What, what, do, you, what do you think of that? That idea? Yeah. Yeah, back to Shabbat. On the street? Yeah. Yeah. In the neighborhood. neighborhood. And um, I really wasn't involved in it. My parents weren't. He objected to somebody in high holiday services that didn't come in, that was coming in, and they didn't have a ticket, and they didn't let him come in. So that changed his idea. And also, Shabbat, I didn't have any Shabbat front. Yeah. Nice, man. Nice. You know, um, that story you just told about um, your father, that is somebody uh, wanting to go to services and then being turned away because they didn't... Someone did. Because, because he didn't have a ticket is a good example. 
example of what you just read from Kaplan, which is the tension between personal and, and communal and obligations, responsibilities, and all <coughs> um, is unfortunately a very common story that I have heard over and over throughout my professional career and life as a rabbi of how many people were turned off to synagogues because of something exactly like that or uh, you know stories of people who grew up in synagogues and then their parents stopped paying dues for one reason or another and somebody died and you know the rabbi wouldn't do the funeral or whatever because they weren't currently paying dues or whatever you know the sort of narrowness of institutionalized religion as opposed to communal religion which was why Kaplan (laughs) was so big on organic Jewish community and and the democratic nature that everybody should be a part of it and that could never happen because the rabbis and the cantors and the professional Jewish educators would all work for the community and not for an individual institution or an individual place but all of us we professionals would be at the at the uh, working for the community as a whole. So anybody that had any need, we would respond one way or another that way. But that story I hear over and over again. Um, the myth misconception, the myths and misconceptions. Trying to put those together, the myth conceptions. It's a good word actually. We should make it up of uh, synagogues. What synagogues are like to those who are not members is also legion. I can't tell you how many times I've done a wedding or a funeral or something somewhere, and afterwards someone would come up to me and go, you know, I was really impressed with something I said or whatever. Um, Could I ever come to the services at your synagogue? Implying that since I'm not a member, I guess I couldn't come. Could I come? You know, how can I get to go to a service at your synagogue? even though I'm not a member, as if every synagogue wouldn't like anybody to walk in the door for any service, any time. But I hear that over and over. I heard it like a thousand times in my life as a rabbi, that 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 perception of synagogues as private country clubs, essentially, private spiritual country clubs. The private club, if you're a member, you belong. If you're not, you don't. If you don't belong, you're not just going to walk into some club you're not going to walk in the Brentwood Country Club if you don't belong and just expect them to take you. You know, you have to be a member. And we have membership dues in every synagogue. So people mistakenly think that they're not welcome to come here. Um, and we never quite overcome that. Someone else's quote. Yeah. He who hopes... Oh, he who hopes to make amends for violations of justice by giving charity is like an assassin who expects to go free because he paid the funeral expenses of his victim. I love Kaplan. He who expects to... What's the first part? He who expects to... To make amends for violations of justice just by by giving charity. You screw up somehow, you violate someone, you're oppressing someone... Yes, but, I mean, this is the real world. How many people are the people with money, the people who are the bosses, 
think of Kaplan's era too, the people who run the corporations and who are oppressing their workers or doing or not, you know, turning a blind eye to injustices that take place. We have all this last couple of years of Me Too that's popped up with very leading figures in entertainment and other places that suddenly have been exposed is a good word, but suddenly have been <laughs> suddenly have been uh, outed by a victim, women who have been victimized by them. Um, and all of the people that kept silent because of their power or because they made big donations to this, that, or the other. And here we, you know, it's, it's human condition. It's not something new it, that uh, people with power abuse power often. Um, but Kaplan was calling out that to think that you could uh, make amends for injustices simply by you know, endowing the chair um, rather than really making amends is akin to an assassin thinking he should get off because he's paying for the funeral expenses of the person he murdered, which is cute. Um, That's like somebody once said, uh, somebody once said, never mind, I can't remember what they said, if I remember it all. I'll tell you, it was cute. Um, Yeah. Somebody else. Sin is the failure to live up to the best that is in us. It means that our souls are not attuned to the divine, that we have betrayed God. Interesting. What do you think of that? Would I be repeated again? Can, can I borrow it? Can I have the microphone? I'll read it. Sin is the failure to live up to the best that's in us. So he's defining his idea of sin. Because traditionally, sin is not doing what God wants you to do. God says, do this. You don't do it. That's a sin. Right? So Kaplan is saying, since Kaplan doesn't believe there's a supernatural being that gave us these commandments to violate, but rather they emerged out of the struggles of the Jewish people to to uh, divine what God wanted us to do. I like that phrase. Um, Sin is the failure to live up to the best that's in us. It means that our souls are not attuned to the divine that we have betrayed God. He saw us betraying that sort of the divine that we can find if we search in our hearts and in our souls that we would know the right thing to do. You know, and, and Judaism, of course, traditionally divides mitzvot into different categories. But one of the major, the major categories of mitzvot is, is um, common sense mitzvot. You, you know, you shouldn't murder. Duh. Uh, you shouldn't steal. Unless you're in Les Miserables and you're hungry. I mean, or whatever. You know, now there's the, but there's a category of mitzvot that we would commonly agree upon regardless of what religion's label we might have we would say this is common sense these are common sense ethical rules of how a society that without which a society would not function or a society would turn into savagery right um, you should not run a red light we should have lights we should have laws we should have 
justices and courts. We should have certain that this sort of common sense. How should, can a society function as equitably? If we want it to function as equitably as possible, there are certain things we would basically all agree upon that are also enshrined in the Torah. You know, and then there are those that you do mitzvah that you do just because in Jewish tradition God said so, even if you don't understand them, if they're not common sense. But so someone would say, well, how about Leviticus 19:18, "Ve'ahavta you should love your neighbor as yourself. Is that a common sense one, or a, you should do it anyway? You know, depends on who you are. Whether you think that's, you know, self-evident, a self-evident thing. Yes, we should treat our neighbors the way we want to be treated. Or it depends on where you're living. Yes, who your neighbor is. Yes, and who you define as neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, maybe only Jews are my neighbors. Everybody else is like some foreigner, stranger. Or everybody in my, where I live is my neighbor. Or in my town is my neighbor. Or in my state. I like all Californians. I'll take care of Californians, but everybody, Arizonans, I don't not so much. Or, you know, certainly I don't know, Minnesotans, they're like frozen. But, or the country. It's, it's my country. This is my neighbor. My neighbor is all the fellow, fellow Americans, as we like to say. Fellow Americans, right? God bless America, everybody says. What about everybody else? Nope, God bless America. You know, like, we have, God has boundaries and borders. Gets to pick. Oh, God bless America. You know, and we have to hope that God's up to date in case America grows somewhere else. You know, we add another state or something. God bless America and Puerto Rico. My sister lives in Puerto Rico. God bless America, Puerto Rico, and Samoa. American Samoa. You know what I mean? So, or the whole world is our neighbors. Or everyone is our neighbors. Or only white people are my neighbors. Or only people who speak English are my neighbors. Or, and that's, you know, part of the wrestling with someone else. Yeah. Speak into the microphone. Well, it's for, the, for those who are going to log on and go, what, what is that about? The search for truth is hampered by the universal tendency to treat as the last word what is really only the first word in any revelation or discovery. What does that mean? Kaplan was very concerned about who got the last word. Yes, it's always him. Yes, let me read that again for everybody. The search for truth is hampered by the universal tendency to treat as the last word what is really only the first word in any revelation or discovery. What do you think that means? Search for truth is hampered by the universal tendency to treat as the last word what is really only the first word in any revelation or discovery. Oh, he's talking about... He's, he's talking about that what makes our civilization thrive is that we are evolving. We're the evolving religious civilization. So people are always discovering new things, new ideas, new theories. Um, and then we go, wow, that's it, we got it. Instead of, oh, that's an opening to further exploration, discovery, and whatever. People's tendency is to look for answers. We want answers, not questions. We got enough questions. So, but every discovery is actually a question. Also opens the door to more questions. No, he made that up. That's one of his. Yeah, I know. He's, he's a smart guy. And somewhere I have that in my book, but I don't know where. 
Yes, the con- well, here we are, starting Genesis again. We know the conversation is never over. Yes, exactly. It's, it's never ending in the argument. Anybody else have one they want to share, want to read? Yes, you'll read it. And it is. There is more hope from enlightened. There is more. There is more hope from enlightened self-interest than from ignorant altruism. There is more hope from tolerant skepticism than from bigoted faith. Kaplan's good with pithy sayings. Can I borrow that? We'll unpack it a little bit. There is more hope from enlightened self-interest than from ignorant altruism. What do you think he meant by that? Like, what's an example of... What would ignorant altruism be? Not accepting other people? Oh, the Hunger Project. I remember that. Ignorant altruism. Yeah. So enlightened self-interest. There's more hope from enlightened self-interest than from ignorant altruism. There's more hope from tolerant skepticism than from bigoted faith. I think he was basically setting up the second line, which is there's more hope from tolerant skepticism than from bigoted faith because we see the world filled with bigoted faith. People who are so convinced of the truism of their faith that everybody else automatically is wrong. There's only a right and wrong. There's yes and no. If I'm yes, you have to be no. It's like, okay. The only way, yes. So it's like I always think of that image of the seesaw too, you know, that people have a seesaw vision of the world and on the seesaw... The only way I can go up is for you to go down. That's the way seesaws work. So, you know, I've got to keep you down for me to be up. Um, and part of that is, is uh, figuring out all the ways I'm right and you're wrong. You know, rather than being a skeptic. Being tolerant, tolerant skepticism is maybe, I don't know, I never thought of that before. That's interesting. You believe that? That's interesting. What makes you believe that? What does that belief inspire you to do as a result? You know, because ultimately, belief is something that's in here. Behavior is something that's out there. And I don't care what you believe, but I do care about how you behave. So if your belief ends up putting me in concentration camps and locking little kids up on the border and whatever, and uh, we're going to pull out of, uh, where we pull out of, Syria this week? We're going to pull out of something and leave the Kurds to get killed by the Turks or whatever. Whatever your belief is, it's your actions that matter, you know. So in a, in a world where you're loving your neighbor as yourself and you're tolerant and you're of other people and you have tolerant skepticism, you, you, you end up with a better world. You end up with more hope for building a community together than not and his, and his ultimate goal which is you know freedom and peace and wholeness and, and shalom so um, 
How are we doing, Harry, with this one? You want me to read it? You want to read it? Okay. Each cell, each organ of the human body, not only keeps itself alive, but also keeps the rest of the body alive. If that procedure extended to humanity as a whole, what a world this would be. Oh, nice. Yeah, like we have a body. It's a good analogy. It's a good metaphor. What is it? The, uh, we have a body, and our body is made up of all these individual cells, but they're not alone. They're all in and it takes all of them for me to be able to do that, you know, or, or anything. You know, I mean, most of the time we don't pay attention to what does it take to go like this and pick something up. You know, the millions of things it must take and all the cells and everything else. But it's all of the collective that holds up, that makes me, me. And we have a society in which, particularly in America, don't forget, remember rugged individualism? That's the American credo, rugged individualism, right? I'm out there, you know, it's like the Wild West, it's me. Go west, young man, you know, on your own, out in the wilderness, you know, Dirty Harry, I don't know, all those things are like about the individual. We have, cele- in America, we have celebrated the individual, individual is, the, but if you're Jewish, you've got to have a partner if you're Torah-centered. But we, we have a culture in which Kaplan functioned, which always sort of exalted the individual. And part of what Kaplan's uh, goal was, was to use Judaism, which is so community-centered and people-centered. It was the idea that used the term peoplehood all the time. And that what gives Jews our identity is not belief, but belonging. Belonging to what? Belonging to this community of people of peoplehood so that you know even yesterday with my baby naming it was a a little bit of a traumatic experience for emotionally traumatic for I guess that's by definition that's supposed to physically traumatic it was emotionally traumatic for the parents of the of both of them of the mother and father because they chose not to circumcise their son they chose to have a naming ceremony for their son without the, the milah. A brit milah without the milah part. Milah is the circumcision, but the brit part, the covenant part. So which so they found me because they, I'm on a list of rabbis who will come and do that. Um, which is essentially like if it was, as if it was a girl. I mean, the same thing. We're baby, we have a baby naming, but without the surgery because they didn't want to circumcise their son. In the meantime, one of them is Persian and comes from this traditional sort of Persian family. The other one, the, the husband is a, grew up as a Reformed Jew from, uh, from Boston, went to, grew up in a Reformed synagogue in, in Boston, one of the suburbs of Boston. And, you know, this is their choice. More and more people are doing that. People are do, making that choice. Not most. Most people are still circumcising their sons when they have them, but people are doing that. My niece just had twins. She didn't circumcise either of them. Of course, I guess she wouldn't circumcise one and not the other, would she? But, but um, flip a coin. Uh, okay, we're going to compromise. I'll circumcise one. <laughs> they argued and they circumcised one. No, so could have been. 
In any event, uh, and I'm on this list that's called Breach Shalom. I didn't give it the name, but it's a list called Breach Shalom, which are rabbis who are willing to, to do whatever, do what I did. In the meantime, I could feel the, the, the tension of the parents. Emergency alert. All Palisades fire evacuations are lifted. Residents in impact area can return home. So, I'm going to let you all return home too in a second. So, in any event, um, yeah, well, it's, I don't know, signed up for it or something. In any event, the, uh, the, the idea is that we are not just individuals, ultimately, we're not just individuals, but we are members of a larger community. And to the degree that we see ourselves as members of a larger community is the degree to which we withhold our own I'm better than you and I have to kill you because you're not, you don't believe what I say, my belief. And the more we are, uh, can be tolerant and inspired to work together as a community instead of what we see now uh, where everybody's like having these rigid black and white and Democrat, Republican, or whatever, yes and no, and um, I don't know. Anyway, but that's really what what Harry's comment is about from Kaplan, that it's if, if the world would be a better place if everybody saw themselves, you know, as, a, as an ant in the ant colony or a bee in the beehive, I suspect, right? Part of an organism that's bigger than me, that's not, I'm not alone. I'm a part of a, what I do affects, not only that, but it's also what one cell does affects every, everybody else. Where do you think cancer comes from? One cell decides, oh, I'm, going, I'm going south. And your whole body's affected by that, right? We, unfortunately, one of the great um, sadnesses of our society is that people don't actually get how important they are, how powerful they are, that they matter to a greater whole and that what they say and do and act what they, matters so that they think it doesn't. You know, if they all felt that it did, we would be much more responsive and responsible about the choices that we make because we would recognize that choices matter. You know, that we make choices. Actually, it was uh, Anne Frank. Anne Frank said in one of her writings that... We make choices, and then after we've made choices, the choices make us who we are. 